0: The first reading is from Exodus, chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And the second reading is from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse beginning at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: But as we come to God's word, let's pray for his help this evening to hear him and to respond rightly to him. Father, you know our hearts and you know they are a battleground with many voices competing for their or its affection its allegiance father we pray this evening that as we hear you speak to us through your word as we sing our praises as we remember the sacrifice of your son as we gather around his table later on we pray that you would be magnified in our vision, that we would uh, increasingly delight in you and in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ such that he would win all of our heart and thereby win all of our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, John Piper is uh, an American pastor and author whom I have found very helpful uh, over the years. And I think it's true to say that at the heart of his ministry really is the contention that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, when we are delighted by God, when we find him and all that he is for us sufficient, uh, when we are content in him regardless of our external circumstances because we're looking to him to be the sole source of our contentment, then, then God is truly glorified in us. Because then we are living proof that his grace is substantial, that his love is satisfying, that his promises of life are true. Friends, Piper's words have been much on my mind uh, as I've prepared this week, because it seems to me that the call... And the challenge of the Tenth Commandment is to be content with God. It is to be satisfied with him. It is to savour him above the stuff of this world. Because we will covet, we will be envious when we are discontent, when we are dissatisfied When we think that satisfaction and life is to be found in created things that we do not have, rather than our Creator, whom we do have by faith, we covet when God is not good enough. We can, of course, pray in difficult situations. We're told to pray when we are finding life difficult. And we can pray for a change in our circumstances, if they are particularly difficult. But whether the Lord changes our circumstances or not, his promise is always to be all that we need in any and every circumstance. Such that we need never covet. I want to uh, think of some four areas this evening. We're going to start by looking at the condition. What is it to covet? What does it mean? Then we're going to think about some of the causes of coveting, uh, the consequences of coveting, and then come, I think, to some of the cures for coveting. So, first, the condition. Have a look at Exodus 20 with me. Verse 17, we've had it read. Let's remind ourselves again of what it is the Lord says to his people as they gather around the mountain and hear his words. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In other words, the Tenth Commandment forbids eagerly desiring which is what the word covet literally means, eagerly desiring what does not belong to you. Uh, One sort of Christian catechism very helpfully unpacks the meaning like this. Quote, the Tenth Commandment requires us to be content with our own status in life and to have a proper loving attitude towards others and their possessions. It forbids any dissatisfaction with what belongs to us and any envy or grief at the success of others. John Piper says this, coveting is desiring anything other than God in a way that betrays a loss of contentment or satisfaction in him. Covetousness is a heart divided between two gods. And that is why Paul, for instance, in his letter to the Colossians, can refer to covetousness as idolatry. Because it's to doubt God's ability to satisfy us. It's to doubt God's ability to bring us what he promises, life and life in all its fullness. And to to seek satisfaction, to seek life in something else, in some created thing that does not belong to us. It would be wrong to seek it. Of course, even if it did belong to us, it would still be idolatry. But here the focus is on what doesn't belong to us. We're not to seek it in our neighbor's spouse or life or belongings. We're not to be people who say, you know, if only I had X, then I'd be happy. Because when we think like that, at that point, X, whatever that is, or whoever that is, has become our God, hasn't it? It's become the thing we're looking to, the thing we think will satisfy, the thing we've put our faith in to bring us life in all its fullness. And so do you see, friends, how with the 10th commandment we have come full circle? Do you see how the 10th commandment takes us right back to the 1st commandment? When we covet it is because God is no longer at the center of our affections. We have found a new God which we think is better and will better satisfy us and bring us life in all its fullness. The first commandment calls us to covet, if you like, God above all else. The tenth commandment is the flip side. Don't let your heart wander from him and attach itself to to something else. The Ten Commandments close with covetousness because covetousness being in and of itself an attitude of the heart shines a spotlight on our hearts, doesn't it? Shines a spotlight on our hearts. It reveals the true condition of our hearts. Somebody once said, and this has got to be right, that covetousness is the great diagnostic of a divided heart. It is the sign of a troubled soul, and we need to take it seriously. That's the condition. What's the cause? Well, I think there are many. Here are a couple. The first, consumerism. We live in a consumerist culture, don't we? And it has been well said that the advertising industry doesn't so much meet our needs as create them. The advertising industry, its whole purpose is to fashion our hearts. Its whole purpose is to make us dissatisfied with what we have and to say, look, here's my product. It'll give you what you're looking for. You're dissatisfied, aren't you? Look at what life could be if you had whatever it is it's selling. It's selling the great lie that contentment is to be found in the increase of our goods. And it is a lie. It is a lie. Chasing contentment in that way is, the Bible says, a chasing after the wind. But many swallow it, and we're not immune to it. We're not immune to it. If we allow the advertisers to fashion our hearts, we will never be content, and therefore we will be covetous. Consumerism. Secondly, I think comparison Comparison rather than counting our blessings. You know, we live in a society, again, that encourages us to go compare. But comparison is a spiritually dangerous game. Because it always leads to discontent. Or pride. You know, my children are usually very happy with one scoop of ice cream right up until they see the people sitting next to them with two scoops of ice cream. And what is true of them, friends, is true of me. It's true of me. I've said it before. You know, one of my great battles is regret. And uh, one of the things, as I've said, is that you know, I, I regret that I didn't make the most of some of the good and the right opportunities that I had when I was younger particularly at university. As I've said before, I was a a very shy, nervous 18-year-old, and I didn't have the courage to join societies or go travelling or do the summer camps that were available. And there have been times when I've regretted that. I really struggled with it. And it has been far worse when I have found myself comparing myself to my wife, Philippa, who is very different to me and was very different to me then, much more outgoing, threw herself into societies and the choir and the student newspaper and went traveling and did summer camps, And when I compare myself to her, my regret is doubled. It is exacerbated. I find myself comparing, and it does me no good at all. And a friend sat me down, and this was recently, recently, and I am still working it in. But he sat me down and he said, Paul, you must spend less time comparing yourself to others and more time counting your blessings. And thinking about those years and what the Lord gave you and did for you in that time. You may not have done a degree that, looking back, you think was the right degree. But you did a degree and you got a good degree and enabled you to do a job that you enjoy doing, which I did teaching for many years. And you know what? At that place, the Lord led you to a Bible-teaching evangelical church where you became a Christian. The most significant moment in your life. Thank God for that. And actually, that church set you in a direction to where you are now, a minister of the gospel. And that place, that that university and that church is where I've met some friends who became lifelong friends and it's where I met Philippa who became uh, my wife and so on and so forth. Spend less time comparing and more time counting your blessings. That's got to be right, isn't it? That's my battle against comparison and yours may well be different but I'd imagine many of us do find ourselves comparing, looking at other people's careers, other people's houses, other people's holiday destinations, Uh, body image, marital status, apparent marital satisfaction, uh, whatever it might be. We all have our battles. Friends, let's spend less time comparing and more time counting our blessings. We'll come to that in a moment. Consumerism, comparison, finally, at its root, the cause of covetousness is discontent with God. At its root, covetousness, like all sin... Flows from discontent with God. I've been reading a book recently which I found very helpful called You Can Change by an English pastor called Tim Chester. And in that he says this We always choose what we believe will bring us the most delight. We always choose what we believe will bring us the most delight. That's right, isn't it? You know, when we're tempted, whatever it might be, but let's take this example. When we're tempted to covet, friends, we are involved in a seduction. The battle is in our heart, and it's a battle of two lovers, God and a usurper. You know, the Bible often personalizes sin because sin speaks to us in the moment of temptation. And it speaks the same seductive words that the serpent spoke to Eve in the garden sin comes to us and he says God is a killjoy Yeah, he's not good he's not going to bring you the best I on the other hand well I'm your true friend I'll give you what you're looking for I'll give you what you need I'm the one that can truly make you happy I can bring you satisfaction and self-worth and significance. And we sin when we believe the lie. We covet something when we believe the lie that, that what we covet is more good for us and to us than God. What are the consequences of coveting? Well, first is it is profoundly dishonoring to God, isn't it? because we, do, we doubt his sufficiency. If only I had X, then I'd be happy. You know, God, you're lovely, but you're not lovely enough. You know, you're not, you, you might be the cake, but you're certainly not the icing on the cake, and I need the icing on the cake. It's a bit like a spouse, you know, whose happiness waxes and wanes according to the number and size of the gifts they receive from their partner. And looking on, you'd, you'd know that was a bit, Off a bit, a bit wrong. You know, that would be profoundly dishonoring. You know, that they weren't really in love with their partner, that their happiness was not so much tied to their spouse but to the material goods they were getting. Well, so too, when we covet, we're dishonoring the Lord. We're saying, you know, our love is tied to our material circumstances. You're not enough, our relationship with you is not enough. I'm seeking, I've got to go find satisfaction somewhere else because you're not providing it. When we spend our time comparing, we dishonor God, we doubt his goodness, don't we? We're saying, if I'm looking elsewhere for happiness, if we're saying, I really need this to make me happy, then what are we saying to God? We're saying, God, actually, you're not good. Actually, you're mean. You're mean. You know, I need this. And at that moment, we're we're casting doubt on his goodness. It dishonors God. It distances from others. You know, covetousness envies what other people have. And far from creating a loving attitude between us, by definition, it's going to create one of distance, isn't it? If I'm envying you, if I'm jealous of you and what you've got, that's not going to create love between us. It's going to create... A distance. Do you remember what James says, James chapter 4? He says, why do you fight? It's because you covet each other. You eagerly desire what the other person has. That's why you fight. Very hard, isn't it? I know this. It's very hard to love someone if you envy them. It's very hard to, 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 to serve someone, to want to lay down your life for someone whom you envy, whom you're jealous of. It distances us from others, and of course it damages us. It damages us spiritually and emotionally. I mean, we know that, we know that the things that we covered, if it's not the Lord, if they're created things, they're not going to satisfy us. Because we're made in the image of God for a relationship with God, we'll never be satisfied until we have one through the Lord Jesus. Somebody once said that a soul created for God will never be satisfied with anything less. Ecclesiastes 5. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. We know these things ultimately disappoint. And Jesus warned us, and our reading from 1 Timothy, Paul warns us, that of course they also damage us spiritually, don't they? You know, if we're coveting, If we're desiring some created thing, then we won't be first coveting and desiring God. If our affections are over here for X, if we're running after this, then we're not running after God, and no man can serve two masters, Jesus said. In the parable of the sower, again, he identifies covetousness as one of the things that chokes the word. Do you remember? It chokes our spiritual life, covetousness. And it is the root, as we heard from 1 Timothy, of so many sins as we increasingly abandon our principles and our godly priorities in the pursuit of the thing we are coveting. So it damages us, dishonors God, distances us from others, so there goes the great commandment of loving God and loving your neighbor, and it damages us emotionally, physically, spiritually. So friends, as we close, what's the cure? What's the cure? Well, here's the first thing I want to say, I think. We we must allow God and not the advertisers, not the culture, to fashion our hearts. We must ask ourselves always the question, what is fashioning my heart? Our society says contentment comes by addition. We live in a world that thinks the road to contentment lies in the Bigger house, the better job, the faster car, the brighter partner, whatever it might be. But the Bible says, you know, contentment can come by subtraction. G.K. Chesterton said that there were two ways to get enough. The first is to accumulate more and more, and the other way is to desire less. And that's right. So the Christian prays, Lord, help me to be content in this situation. The Christian prays, Father, help me to subtract desires that are false. Desires that have been falsely aroused. I was reading a Puritan who said that we must ask the Lord to fashion our heart to our circumstances. That's right. Fashion our heart, Lord, to our circumstances. Melt my will into yours. Lord, fashion our hearts. Secondly, a real word to me, all of this is a word to me. This one in particular, you know, we need to accept all we have as a gift of God. As I was saying earlier, a great antidote to comparison and covetousness is simply gratitude for the good things that we have. You know, um, here is um, a cheap mug. And uh, it is a cheap mug. It is of very low quality. It is very thick And uh, the design is uh, amateur and aesthetically, in many ways, displeasing. Um, But despite that, it is my favorite mug. Uh, Why is it my favorite mug? It is my favorite mug because my daughter made it for me. And uh, Charlotte uh, gave it to me on Father's Day. She designed it, she painted the image, Best Dad in the World, it says. she gave it to me as an expression of love. To anybody else, this is a cheap mug and not particularly pleasing aesthetically. But to me, it comes as an expression of her love. It comes, if you like, with her love attached to it. And therefore, to me, it is priceless. We will be content with what we have so far as we remember that everything we have is a gracious gift of a loving father and comes to us as a token of his love with his love attached. Here is that Puritan who wrote on contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs. Quote, every good thing the people of God enjoy, they enjoy it in God's love and coming from God's eternal love to them. And this needs be very sweet to them. This needs to be very sweet to them. Everything we have, every good thing we have comes from a loving Father and it comes with his love. Everything we have comes with his good purposes attached as well. It comes in order to draw our hearts nearer to him in which true satisfaction is to be found. So let's spend less time comparing and more time grateful for the good things we have. Let's allow God to fashion our hearts. Let's accept all we have as a good gift of God. And thirdly, above all, friends, let us delight in God. The key antidote to covetousness is to delight in God. It is to be satisfied with all that he is for us in Jesus. The the way to displace our neighbor's spouse and life and belongings from the center of our affections is not just to think about those things less, That is helpful, but it's not sufficient. We need to think about God more, and we need to think more of God. Our Savior, Christ, must become more attractive to our hearts than anything else. The psalmist says this, Psalm 37, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because if God is the desire of our hearts, then our hearts will always have their desires met because God does not withhold himself from those who desire him. He doesn't promise us health and wealth and happiness. He doesn't necessarily promise to zap our circumstances, but he does promise us himself and to work in us such that our hearts will be content in any and every circumstance. I read this, uh, a friend pointed it out on Twitter. Somebody twi- uh, tweeted this. God is so committed to our happiness that he refuses to allow us to be satisfied with anything but himself. How do we do it? We pray. We pray for Christ to change our hearts. When we become Christians, one of the things that God gives us is a desire for himself. And let's pray for God to fan that desire into flame. You know, if if we're struggling with covetousness, regret, envy, jealousy, if we're struggling by envying other people's things or other people's lives, you know, the great news is that we have a God who is with us and who is in us to change us. The desires of our hearts are not unchangeable. God can and he will change the deepest longings of our heart from those fleeting, fragile, created things which could never meet those longings. himself who meets them abundantly let's pray for a heart that longs for God Uh, such a heart will always be content because such a prayer is always answered with the presence of his love and life giving splendor and let's not just pray but let's preach Christ to our hearts let's taste and see that the Lord is good let's look at Christ and savour him Let's reflect on the beauty of the person of Christ, on the importance of his work. Do we prize him such that we praise him from a heart that has been softened by all that he is and all that he is for us? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes, that we might become truly rich. A wealth that has nothing to do with our bank balance, but is a treasure that is found in him that is kept in heaven where it cannot be moved or lost or tarnished and which will outlive and outlast, if it were possible, the new heavens and new earth. Until we can say with the psalmist, Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the person that promises his purposes for us, as we will do later on as we gather around his table, the things of this earth will grow dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Here's Tim Keller. If grace has really changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it, as long as we have him. The joys of acclaim, wealth and power are nothing compared to the eternal acclaim, wealth and power. We have in Him. And friends, if we do that, you know, Exodus 20, I must not covet, will become for us, I need not covet, because I have God, and He is better by far. And that is the road that will bring most glory to Him and most good to us. God grant us the grace to walk it.
0: Amen.